episode 109 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Hi, my name is Emily, and I'm a captain on the Q400 based out of Calgary, flying for a Canadian airline. Avi Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to episode number 109 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today is a great episode. I'm talking with Pilot Emily, who is a Canadian airline pilot and one that has an incredible story. I had a lot of fun talking with Emily and just enjoyed our conversation about life, about flying, just pretty much about everything. It's it's one that I think will, will really inspire future aviators in the future. So I, I really, really hope you enjoy this, and I hope you share this with your friends and other aviators as well if you enjoy the podcast please leave us a review on itunes you can check us out on instagram at pilot the pilot you can also check out our patreon page patreon.com slash pilot the pilot we also have a buy me a coffee if uh, patreon is not your thing there's a link in this episode to buy a coffee i mean who doesn't need a coffee every once in a while but aviation thank you so much for just your your so much support with two episodes a week and three episodes last week uh there's a possibility for three episodes this week as well i'm currently out on the road i got caught out to go do some flying. I'm in Cleveland going to Telluride tomorrow, then Van Nuys. So uh, a busy day tomorrow, but I'm going to try to make sure there's another third episode on either Wednesday or Friday. It's Ask a CFI with Chris Palmer, and it's based on a student pilot. So it's a great addition. Let me know if you want me to release this. Leave me an email. I also want to let you guys know that there are hats for pre-order right now. They are tan leather pilot pilot hats. So check out shoppilotthepilot.com. I'm putting in an order on Saturday for hats, and you do not want to miss out on that because once they're ordered, can't order anymore. But Aviation, I want to keep you any longer. So any further ado, here's episode 109 with Pilot Emily. Emily, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Hi, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Uh, I'm glad we finally got this to work out. I think I've had to cancel on you like five times. So I'm surprised possibly, you still want to talk possibly. to me. Yeah. yeah, no, it's all good. Things happen. Yeah, I, I will be the first to admit that I'm terrible at keeping a calendar and a schedule. And it's just like, oh, no. <laughs> How do you keep your life in check? I, I, no I would idea. be lost if I didn't. Well, it all sounds like a good idea. And then I get really excited about recordings and I like get a bunch of people. I'm like, hey, you want to record? And then it's like, yes. And then I'm running into the same predicament. I actually scheduled three people to interview tomorrow at the same time without knowing it. (laughs) (laughs) Usually I should just do a Zoom call and just get everybody going at this point. (laughs) There you go. Everyone talking at once. So why'd you want to be a pilot? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great idea. Knock it all out once. That's a, I'm going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, nonetheless, I'm glad you're on the podcast. I've been wanting to get you on for a while and uh, I'm excited to be able to share your story. And speaking of your story, why don't we just go ahead and jump right in? I guess the first question I usually ask everyone is why aviation? Why did you want to get, why did you want to be a pilot? What was your original kind of interest in this career? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. First of all, um, I'll always appreciate that for sure. Um, I don't know. It, it really just, I started really out of the blue. I wasn't one of those people who knew they wanted to do this. Like when they were young, I didn't do cadets. I didn't, I don't have anybody in my family that's in aviation. So it really came out of, you know, left field. I'd been working as, um, as a massage therapist for two years at the time. And I was going through a really rough spot. I, you know, lost a friend and just like dealing with like some, you know, symptoms of depression and just like wondering what I was going to do with my life. And, my dad had gone to see like one of his clients and I think he had dinner with, um, with his, his, uh, 
his clients and they happened to meet their daughter or his daughter and his daughter was a pilot. And for whatever reason, my dad just like saw some similarities or like he, he thought of it as, you know, potentially an idea for me because I'd always been so obsessed with travel and I always wanted to do something like it was very like non-standard. And he randomly suggested it to me. Like as I was going through this rough time, he's like, Oh, ever thought about, you know, being a pilot. And I was like, huh? Like it had never occurred to me. I had never thought about it. So then I finally just went for like an intro flight. I don't, I think I took like a day to think about it. I just went, (laughs) I didn't even book an appointment. I just showed up at the airport, not even realizing that you're totally supposed to book these things. Anyway, so someone happened to be available, which was great. And um, so I went up for the flight and I was like, yeah, let's do this. Like I didn't even like, (laughs) I didn't even do the research. I was like, you know what? We're going to figure it out. This sounds awesome. I think somewhere down the line, I'll get paid to do this. So that would be pretty Maybe, sweet. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'll get to travel. So yeah, sign me up. So I just, that was like 10 years ago, almost to the day, That's literally crazy. 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. What was, uh, so a lot of people kind of ask, I'm sure you get this question all the time too. How do I become a pilot? Uh, yes. You kind of had to answer this question on your own. What what kind of research? What did you do? I know you said you just showed up, but how did you find an airport? That's kind of like <laughs> one of the hardest parts is just like just understanding that all you really have to do is go to an airport and ask to fly. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, all right, well, we'll work yeah. in. Let's do it. It's uh, it's a good question, and it's true. It seems kind of daunting. I, I don't know if it's obviously ten years ago the amount of information online versus like what we have nowadays. Like it's. It's obviously much more stuff online. I almost wonder if there's too much info sometimes and it puts people in this like crazy brainstorming phase instead of just taking action. I I don't know if that has something to do with it, but I think, you know, I I just looked up at the nearest airport in my in my region. And for myself, it happened to be uh, just a small airport, you know. There, there was some commercial flights that came in and out, but it's called Buttonville Airport out of Markham in um, near Toronto. And I just showed up in person. And from there, obviously, they guided me because, you know, they wanted me to fly out of that airport specifically. But I was also cognizant of, you know, I realized that I had to do my own research as well. And then I just kind of brainstormed it out. I thought to myself, OK, what do I need to become a commercial pilot? I broke down the steps. There was an instructor there that helped me, you know go through the steps. So like, you know, first you need your, your private and then you need your night rating and et cetera. I went through the steps. Once I knew all that, I couldn't, I kind of broken down into smaller steps and I told myself, okay, realistically, if I fly X amount of times per week, how long will this take me? And then once I broke it down into that, you know, smaller step goal, I was able to look and see where would I be able to achieve that? So like the the school that I was looking at specifically, you know, were they going to be able to give me that setup or should I go to another school? And so after I did a little bit of research, I was able to settle on that. It just happened to be that same one as I was able to see, okay, yeah, this is going to fit with my current lifestyle. It's going to fit with my current goals Uh, for myself. I knew I didn't want to go and get like a full degree since I'd already, you know, gone through post-secondary education, obviously huge, huge help and not deterring anybody from doing that. But at this point I was already like a little bit older and I had already had some, you know, postgraduate experience, I guess you could say not related to the field, but still some. Um, and since that school was kind of looking to be able to give me that, I, I set myself a goal and I said, okay, I'm going to get all my licenses based on this timeline. I should be able to target, you know, by the time I'm 25 years old. And I just, kind of did it really. I, like once I had that skeleton of a plan, I just took it like one day at a time, really. 
And so you were able to to keep up with that goal and did you hit your mark when you thought you would? Yeah, wow. I did. Yeah. That's awesome. Because <laughs> awesome. as you know, aviation and training, there's like so many variables, especially <laughs> yes. in Toronto. I, I did some of my training in Ohio and I'm guessing the weather is relatively similar. It's just like I always cloudy, so. kind of kind of gloomy and not the best to go fly. So to be able to exactly. do that's pretty amazing. And and they took that into consideration when they were like, you know, guiding me as to like what was realistic, you know, like with with the amount of flights that get canceled for weather, just as you said, it's totally something that's, you know, you need to consider. Whereas like, you know, the guys in Florida, they've got it like perfectly set up when they're doing fair. their flight yeah. training, right? It's yeah. not fair. <laughs> so, yeah, but I, I also had, you know, when I said like I met my marker, I said I would be 25 years old. So that gave me a year you know, of fluctuations as to, as to like when I would achieve it. And uh, so I think that was, that was achievable in terms of like giving me a bit of a, you know, a buffer for, for when I could uh, get all the licenses. What was, uh, what was your dad? What, what did he think when you finally were like, yeah, I'm actually going to be a pilot. He's like, oh my gosh, yeah. I just kind of randomly <laughs> mentioned that you're actually going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think my parents, I think they know I was kind of like the one like kind of wild child that was just going to kind of do something crazy with their life. So I think when he like suggested it and I went for it, I think he believed me right away when I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that <laughs> because I, one of the coolest things that I think probably helped me with like my love of travel is when my parents, they both, you know, worked, they were both like business men and women. So they traveled a lot in their own career and they would bring me back postcards whenever they would go to like new destinations. And it was like this small little thing, like just to like, help me just like visualize because when you're younger like you don't necessarily have access to the internet right away like you you want to learn about the world but just them sharing those postcards just like it just expanded my mind and I think that's what helped me so when I think he realized how much I was like loving the travel and like loving the exploration I think it was just a fit in his mind so I'm super grateful he he randomly suggested that yeah that's awesome what about your friends what did your friends think they're like wait you're gonna be a pilot yeah. <laughs> they thought it was the weirdest thing. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. They they were like, what? Really? Like, how are you going to do that? Like, are you sure? I think because maybe you went through this. I, I'm not sure. Maybe some of your other guests also experienced this. But at the beginning, it's such a long road that it's almost like not that, that it's not believable, but it's such a far finish line that you talk about it for so long and like, I don't, I'm not sure if people are just like, oh yeah, like they're, they're working on it, but we don't really know if it's a reality, right? Until it's, you know, three years later, once you've finished all your licenses, people now start to recognize like, oh yeah, this person's like serious about it because it's such a long process, right? So I think they were stoked for me. They were super supportive. Some people were a little bit, you know, doubtful, I guess, of the end result, but I think most people were pretty excited. Well, it's funny because I feel like there's like a misperception of pilots and that you have to be like a rocket scientist. You have to be super smart. Yes. It's like, I mean, yeah, you have to be smart, but like you gotta be able to think on your feet. You gotta be able to like, just be able to process information and kind of handle adversity. And uh, most anyone can fly an airplane. You don't have to be the best math elite you've ever been or like the smartest person. So I'm on, probably when I said I want to be a pilot, my friends are like, uh, bro, you, you're not very good at school. Like, what do you mean you're going to be a pilot? Like, that's not going to happen. But obviously, like, sure? here we are. Yeah. I'm a pilot. Uh, yeah. I also, one thing I struggled with when I was doing my training and even after what you say, my route, I went aerial survey to freight and then to where I'm at right now. And I never, I always had a struggle with like, I would tell people I was a pilot, but I never really believed myself that I was a pilot until I became like an airline pilot or until I became a corporate pilot. And I always thought that... Isn't that interesting? I don't know if like if you had similar thoughts like that or if that's just like a me thing or what. I think it has to do with just the process because it takes so long. Like at what point 
yeah, you're right. Like at what point do you consider yourself a pilot? Is it when you first go solo? Is it when you get your first job at an airline? I don't know. You're right. It's this weird in between. I think it's when you start probably making like some kind of an income. (laughs) So your first job probably, because even if you've got your commercial license, like let's be real for most of us, it took a decent amount of time or some time before we actually started to like get paid or work as a pilot. So I agree. It's a weird transition. And even then the most frustrating thing for me was when my friends are coming out of college, like they had landed some good jobs or making like 60 grand, 80 grand, which means a lot coming out of college. And here I am like a pilot making like $27,000 and I'm working like part-time at the Apple store while I'm doing my training. Like, Oh, Justin, you still living at home? Like what's, what's your deal, man? It's like, like, I have a goal one day. I promise. (laughs) My dad would always tell me, he's like, it's going to be very much delayed gratification, but one day and it's going to happen fast and you're just going to pass them. And they're still going to be making like 80 grand or maybe a hundred grand, like 20 years later. And you're finally going to be making the money. It's like, but I want that now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. um, What was your training like? Did, uh, I know you said you had the set goal and you wanted to get it all done by 25, which gave you the whole year, like you said, which is awesome. But did you have any kind of mishaps in your training? Did you have anything that you slipped up on at all or were you the best pilot ever? Oh my God. Yeah. Can you imagine me the best pilot? No, absolutely. With tons, tons of slip ups and it took me in total, I calculated about like three and a half years. So I'm sure you can imagine in in three and a half or sorry, three years, three years to do everything. So I'm sure you can imagine what kind of stuff can happen in three years. But I, you know, I injured my shoulder at one point. I like failed my, I partialed. I don't know if you guys also do this in the States, but our commercial written exam, like it's in different sections. So like I failed one portion, which means, you know, you, you don't pass the whole thing. Um, it's like tons of different things that, that have definitely come up and struggling with like your IFR flying at first. Cause for that, that was like a big transition for me, like really struggle at the beginning to like just picture the whole thing from above almost like to, to witness or sorry, to understand what you were kind of going through. So I typically would fly. What I would do is I would book about um, three to four lessons, maybe even five lessons a week. Um, so what I would do, because I was still working full time as a massage therapist, so I would go and book a flight lesson in the morning. So, you know, first flight of the, of the morning. So 6 a.m. showing up for your briefing go fly for, you know, from seven to eight or or whatever, and then go and treat my clients. So I would go and massage, you know, four or five people. And then if the weather was really good, I'd drive back and go for like a solo, like later on into my, into my training, I would fly twice a day if I, if I could. So I would do that, you know, book it maybe five times a week. And then depending on the ones that get canceled, maybe three a week would go and just keep going basically. So I did that. And I was working also part-time at the airport just to stay involved and to like make connections and to like, you know, get like that 5% discount or, or whatever it hey, is that, that it got helps. you. Yeah. yeah. But just to like involve myself in the industry too, because this was a huge transition. So just working at dispatch, understanding, you know, some of the rules and the regulations and just even like staying in the industry, even say when I would have breaks, because there was a break when I, uh, when I injured my shoulder, I was off for about nine months. I stopped for nine months. Um, just to recover and and to to get better. So I still worked at the airport during that time because I someone had told me a mentor back in the day had mentioned that even if say you're not currently getting your licenses or flying, stay involved, like stay attached in some way because you'll get right back into it that much quicker. Whereas if I'd fully separated myself, I think it would have 
been a bit more a bit more inertia to kind of get over to get back into it so that was a really good tip for the for the training yeah absolutely i whoever gave you that, that advice is a genius because it is very hard <laughs> when you remove yourself for something for nine right. months and then when you do go back you're probably gonna i mean there's a lot of times there's beginner's luck when you go back the first time you might have a great flight but you're eventually gonna have that flight that's almost gonna break you you're gonna be like oh my gosh i can't even do a straight level flight I can't climb, I can't turn, I can't land. Like I've been, I have my private, but I can't do this anymore. Why am I still doing this? And it, absolutely. But with you surrounding yourself with it, it kind of kept that hunger. You saw other people do it. Maybe you saw people that had, you know, that you guys are at the same level, and then you saw them keep progressing. And you're like, all right, I got to get past him. I got to get past her. I got to be better than him. You know. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly what he had mentioned. He said you're going to be motivated by other people who are continuing, and and like just like you said, other people might also you know have their breaks, and then you like keep you know, inspiring and, and pushing one another to, to not give up basically. Did you ever have a moment? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that could have been the moment too, when you had to take nine months off, but did you ever have a moment where you kind of had that, like a, a mental break and not even necessarily a mental break, but you kind of had it in your mind where maybe I can't do this. Maybe this is too much for me. Maybe I'm weighing it over my head. Cause I feel like all pilots at one point, whether it's through IFR, whether they have a failed check ride, they just all of a sudden they're going to be like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? I can't do this. Did you ever have a moment yeah. like that? Yeah, I had two two very distinct ones. Um, first one was I did a multi IFR flight test, fully bombed it the first one, and I think like that one, like walking away. Thankfully, the instructor didn't charge me or something. Like he only ended up charging like for the plane rental because you just saw like how devastated I was. Probably <laughs> felt really bad or something. But um, he gave me he gave me a chance. He's like, listen, there's only a couple things that I think you need to work on that'll help the entire thing. So I was, I was going about it too much from trying to memorize the steps instead of just like understanding what was happening. So he's like, I think once you click on that, you'll be okay. So like that was a big breaking point though, because I think it had been canceled. It was like in the fall in Ontario. So I'm sure you can imagine like the weather that we get there. It got canceled and rebooked 20 times in like the month. I think my, my multi, yeah, because of how many times we had to cancel and rebook it. So my nerves were just through the roof and just like the culmination of all that. And then failing it was just like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't do this. So that was really rough. Uh, I eventually obviously passed it and it was such a good feeling because you're like, okay, (laughs) overcome like such a big challenge. And then the second one was getting my instructor license because obviously many of us, you know, once you get your commercial, not that very, not that many opportunities, you know, I guess we'll say seven years ago by this point. So I was like, okay, looks like I've got to become an instructor. I didn't want to become one at the beginning. And the, for whatever reason, I just found the training super challenging. Like it was a lot to take in. Like all of a sudden you realize, Hey, however, how I understood a stall to happen was totally not how it happens. And now I have to somehow teach that to someone else. Like it makes you doubt everything that you learned in your initial training. You're so like, you kind of have to start pilot. all over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. Um, so yeah, so it was the second one was doing the training and just kind of understanding how, maybe how you didn't understand it the right way and how now you yes. have to teach it the right way. And yes, that was something that I, exactly. I, I didn't become a flight instructor. I like actively tried not to because very right. similar <laughs> one, I didn't want to do like stalls and spins all day and there's nothing wrong with being an instructor. But it just, I didn't think I wanted to do it. So <laughs> I didn't and I was able to find a different route. But it's definitely tough. Like you're you're done with check rides at that point. You're a commercial pilot. You have all the ratings you think you need. You think you're the best pilot in the world. It's like, I just want to get paid to go do what I want to do now. You know, it's definitely exactly. a tough rating to get. 
Exactly. So it was challenging and exactly what you said. That's did not want to do it. I was trying to, I like had applied to a bunch of different jobs at this point. I had done tons of networking, tried to like send off my, my resume and like physically, you know, dropped it off to people and I wasn't getting anything back. And the state of the industry at the time wasn't you know, obviously what it is at this point. Well, pre COVID we'll say, <laughs> but, um, it, I just didn't want to do it. And then the, the, it almost made me face some of the weaknesses that I might've had during my training. So down the road, it was actually kind of amazing that I ended up doing that because I, magically ended up loving instructing, but obviously you don't know that at the beginning, but I agree with you 100% at first. How long did you instruct for? I ended up teaching for three and a half years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and you so ended up liking I really it, you enjoyed said? it. Yeah. So I was teaching at a different program, not the one that I got my initial training at. So I trained um, at like a small airport, I ended up moving to another place. It was like an hour and a half east of uh, Toronto. It's in a small city called Peterborough. And there was a full integrated government subsidized program um, that we have there. Yeah, it's a fantastic program. So I ended up teaching there. So obviously like the salary setup and like the benefits are like very, very nice compared to maybe what some other people have experienced with, with instructing. So that support really makes you then enjoy the job a lot more <laughs> if that makes sense like just being able to like get paid properly and like have some health benefits that are involved and like step progression and all that like it made you want to stay a little bit longer which was really it made it, it made it to be a nice experience for me more enjoyable yeah yeah what uh so you mentioned the cadet program and i know that's I, i've talked with jeffrey the pilot before i've talked with a couple other yes. canadian pilots but i don't really remember <laughs> what the cadet program was can you explain a little bit what that is yeah and it's like this is such a good option for a lot of students who are younger, who are coming right out of high school and who want to get a full degree program um, with also getting all of your licenses. So the way that it works, it's like it's fully modulated. So you basically start from absolutely no license, nothing to full, you know, multi IFR um, pilot when you finish and graduate the program. So the first year is only academics. Um, so we don't see those students because they're in a different campus. They're in Toronto at this point. So it's, it's pretty heavy duty. You do have to pass and, you know, the certain amount of washout, obviously, depending on, you know, your skill level, I guess we'll say, but you know, you've got your maths, you've got your physics, you've got your English. And then once you do move on from that first year, the second year is where you start your flying. So it's fully still modulated. So you'll have, you know, the, the flying set up on certain days, you'll have your lessons and your PGIs. We call them PGIs, your preparatory ground instruction. I'm not sure what you guys call it, but basically like the ground portion of the flying. And then you'll also still continue with your, your courses. So your math and your English and all that. So it's, it's, it's intense. I don't even know if I personally would have made it through the program, but teaching there was, was fantastic. And a lot of students end up you know, because they've got that degree, it does give them that edge. Um, there's tons of then programs that feed right into the airlines in Canada from that cadet program. So it's almost like a direct lead into, say, Jazz or, you know, small, you know, there's opportunities with Sunwing even. So there's a bunch of different companies that have, you know, their eye on those on those graduates from those from those programs. So they're they're pretty nice for that. What, is it only in Toronto or they have them in each major city? No, it's just uh, Peterborough is where that uh, that school is. So there's that one that's fully modulated. And I believe there's another one in Western Canada. I think it's out of, um, I don't know if it's fully integrated, like in full a ATPL integrated, what I just described, but it's close as well, um, close to Calgary out here as well. Gotcha. So would you say that 
do airlines kind of prefer those pilots, do you think? Is it kind of like the more preferred selection to go that route? Or is it kind of they, they'll hire whoever the best is and whoever they like most? At this point, yeah, it's more the, the latter, the second one. Because, yeah, of course, they're they're going to take an eye and and look for those graduate programs or look for people who've got a degree. Um, but because that shortage is still very real, um, you know, I got hired to a major airline without a degree. So it's, I mean, obviously, you've got other ex- you know, extracurricular activities that definitely help too. So sometimes I think people get so tied into just getting a degree that they don't, maybe they don't focus or develop themselves outside of that, which is a huge thing too, right? You and I both know when we fly with people, it's fantastic to have guys who have had life experiences or who have traveled or who've, you know, gone a degree in a different field even. Like, so it's, it's nice to keep your mind open because I think bringing people from different backgrounds to the cockpit is super, super important. Yeah. And it's also great when you can have a conversation when you're flying a plane that's not about airplanes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, exactly. all right, cool, 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 bro. What else do you have to offer? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. you still fly. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, yeah. I totally agree. It's great to have some kind of uh, diversity in your background and be able to, to offer something other than uh, just being a pilot because that gets kind of boring after a while to talk about for four days or eight yeah. days, however long you're out on the road. What, um, when you, so you said you didn't really want to be instructor, but then you ended up liking it. What would you say was actually kind of the turning point or what made you like instructing in the end? That's a good question. Um, I think just like the, I think the personal satisfaction that you get from seeing someone else succeed or someone else like get something is like, it's, it's underrated. And maybe that's what other teachers know. And that's what they, they, that's what they love about it. But like seeing someone like all of a sudden, you know, be, be struggling with like a skill, like a crosswind landing or something. And then like, you see them improve and you see them get it. Like, it's, it's so nice to like support another person and like in their success like that. Like I, I truly, truly enjoy seeing people just like grow out of their comfort or like just improve on something. So it's really cool to like be that guidance for that person. So I think that really, really, that was just, yeah, it's just a lot of fun to see someone else succeed like that. And the area where I used to teach out of like, it's cottage country. So it's like, it's beautiful, beautiful area to fly around, like tons of lakes, tons of forests. So the environment was also really nice. And I think I I kept up with my teaching because I ended up also becoming a trainer for my current airline. Um, I think it's just like passing the torch. I think it's just like that mindset of like participating in the next generation's education, just the way that other people did that for me above me, right? Like having that mentoring and like taking someone under your wing sort of mindset. Like I I really think that's really important in in the aviation community. So I think I just embody that and I just enjoy it. So I, I kept it going. That's awesome. What do you think the hardest thing was for you being an instructor? Was it kind of, uh, I know we talked about before, like figuring out a way to, it's easy to, to understand a subject, but it's hard to make someone else understand a subject. Yeah. I'd imagine that would be pretty tough, but was there anything else that was tough for you when you're instructing? Um, giving people like the less, less ideal feedback, I think is, is challenging because you don't, you just don't want to be a jerk. Right. But, um, and I'm sure a lot of my students would probably say I was, I was a hard ass cause I, I tend to, cause I want them to succeed. So I think I could probably come off a little bit, uh, a little bit tough, but I think the hardest thing for me was probably just, you know, having to fail someone on like a, a, uh, a check ride, not, not myself doing the check ride, but like a pre check ride, like, or say, because that program was so regimented and it had to be you know, you had to be successful in a certain amount of flights. Like it, it wasn't like you got unlimited amounts of, of attempts. Right. So whenever you saw someone who just 
in the timeline wasn't progressing the way that they were, unfortunately, they wouldn't make it through the program. That Now, that's not to say that they wouldn't make it into, say, the type of flying that I did, like a mom-and-pop type shop, and you just do your own flying hours. But in the structure of the program, they might not they might not have been able to to make it the whole way. So I think that was the hardest part, where you see the passion, you see the guys and girls who want to be pilots. They, they really want to dedicate themselves to this. They're studying really hard, but it just doesn't come together in the timeline that we're expecting them to. I think that was really, that was really hard to see. You, you want to help them out, but there's not, there's a certain amount that you just can't keep going. Right. Eventually they have to be able to pass. They have to be able to get yeah. it done. You know, it's like exactly. at the end of the day, you have to be able to, you can either fly a plane or you can't, you can either fly it to yeah. the standard or you can't. And you have to prove exactly. that. Exactly. And exactly. I mean, you give someone as many chances as, 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 as you're able to, but eventually you might have to say, sorry, man, you know, like maybe this isn't exactly for you, you know? which is tough. Yeah. Did you have any experiences where, did you see, I guess not any experiences, but did you see anyone maybe wash out or did you see a lot of people that just, they were making their way through and then eventually something happened and they couldn't make through it anymore? Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch. There's even people who I know myself, um, you know, that nest, that went through the program, like, like down the line, you end up meeting them and you end up finding out that they, they had gone through two years of the program and then washed out. But they're just, they're beside you in the airline with you now, like in the flight deck, right? Because they ended up failing that program, took it somewhere else to do flying at their own pace, you know, paying out of their own pocket, obviously for it, but having maybe a different instructor, maybe a different environment. And they ended up being successful as well. So there's tons of stories like that where people, it just, it doesn't work for them in that environment and they end up thriving somewhere else. So you definitely see it. I've definitely seen, or students have messaged me after the fact saying, Hey, you know what? Like I I didn't end up succeeding, you know, in the, in the pilot side of things, but I ended up being a full-time dispatcher or, you know, they stay in the industry in in a different, form right so there maybe they're dealing with um airport operations or maybe they decided to be you know do fueling on the ground or or whatever the case there's tons of people who end up still staying in the industry which is really cool to see yeah and i like how you brought up how there, there's still some people that maybe didn't it didn't work out for them at that program at the the high fast-paced program but they were able to go somewhere else find a more maybe a more program that's more tailored to how they learn or a program that they can kind of take their time and fly when they want to fly because that's why there are different programs just because you can't make it at well in the states it's called a 141 school which is kind of similar right. to what we're talking about just because you can't make it there or maybe it's not the best fit for you doesn't mean you can't be a pilot it doesn't mean you're not going to be a good pilot it just means that you need to find a better option you need to find what works best for you you know so it, absolutely just because you mess up somewhere else or you fail or you have a couple of check ride bust or i mean I don't know about a couple, but just because you have a check ride bus doesn't mean you're a bad pilot. You can still go find a, a good place to, to tailor more toward you and you can still become a pilot. Absolutely. And I think, I think you could probably echo this, but I think if you talk to every single pilot, they will tell you in their career, they have absolutely failed at least one thing or they screwed up at least, you know, one check ride or, or whatever the case. And individually, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect on you as a pilot. You know, you might've had a bad day. You're going through some stressful scenarios. Tons of us experience that. So I always tell that to people like, you know, whenever they used to get stressed, it's like, no, no, we've, every single one of us have experienced this. We've all had that WTF moment. We're like, what the heck? Like, why, A, why did I do that? B, what the heck? (laughs) And sometimes it happens with an instructor. Sometimes it happens with an examiner. Sometimes it happens when you're out flying and the other guy, the the other person flying me is like, dude, you good? Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It it all happens and you just got to learn from it. That's the big thing in aviation is learn from your mistakes and uh, don't do them again. 
exactly. What, uh, so you mentioned that one of the reasons that you got in aviation and you liked the idea of aviation was because of travel, which obviously is one of the cool things that we get to do. Did you ever think about going into corporate or were you kind of just all airlines, airlines, airlines? That's kind of the main goal. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so I actually didn't even want, want to do the airlines at first, which is funny that you ask. Yeah. So I have, I, I totally considered corporate. I think ultimately what it came down to, or the reason why I gave airlines a shot is because obviously I wanted to try before I could fully write them off. Like I wanted to at least, you know, make my way there, experience it for a little bit, give it a shot and see how I liked it. Um, but the taste of travel that I got from the airlines is what will probably keep me there. And what I mean by that is like the, the flight benefits that we get and the range of destinations that we can access is just amazing. And, you know, for me being able to, to go to Australia, when I first started flying with the company that I was, I, I was there during a vacation. I was there, I was able to go for so cheap and I was like, yep, this is for me. (laughs) So it really like, it really appealed to me. Um, and the, the level, you know, of training that we got up there was like fantastic. Now, would I ever, you know, consider corporate through like for different parts of my career? Absolutely. There's something to be said about just exposing yourself again to like different, different like aircraft, different people, different types of, you know, different types of employment. And I think sometimes people think like their book is very like one directional in terms of like, you know, each chapter kind of follows one, you know, sequentially. But I think for myself, I'm just, I love just like new experiences. I love pushing myself to to learn as much as possible. So absolutely. Why not fly a different type of aircraft? Why not have a different type of boss, uh, employees, you know, set up? So absolutely. I would consider consider it. What, uh, so you mentioned you flight instructed for like three and a half years or three years. What was the process for you to make the switch from flight instructing until say an airline or regional airline or major airline? How, how long did you take to apply to the jobs? Or were you always applying to jobs while you're a flight instructor? And kind of what was the process of you getting to where you are now or your next job after that? Yeah. So I think this is where it's starting to change a little bit because I think when I, so this would have been, I guess, five years ago or so, um, I had given myself a bit of like a ballpark. I was like, you know what, I'll get to a thousand hours, um, with obviously the job at the time was instructing. So I'll get a thousand hours, um, you know, under my belt in terms of like my experience and just feeling comfortable with like being a pilot in command, because obviously even, even though you're just an instructor, quote unquote, you're still making those decisions with another individual. Right. So in terms of like the safety, uh, and all that. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll give myself a thousand hours and then I'll start to really, you know, look for different opportunities or, you know, if I don't like it or, you know, I'll kind of get out of there. So that's what I I did. I I gave myself that thousand hours. I also wrote our exams. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have also uh, ATPL written exams, but we have two big ones in in Canada. So I wanted to make sure that I was kind of like in that environment to like write them because you're surrounded by it constantly. So it was like a perfect opportunity for me to, to write them while I still have other people to like bounce ideas off of and, and, and learn. So I wrote those and then I went to apply for, for different jobs. So my first one that um, I was starting to look at in terms of like, you know, hourly requirement, I ended up applying to a job and I was flying in, uh, in Africa for a little bit. They're flying a classic, uh, dash a, but it was the 300 and the 100. And I had to write the right amount of hours for them at the time. I think I ended up going with them at like 1200 hours, 1300 hours, something like that. But they were taking people with that type of experience and the progression answering like your second question 
it was tough at first. It was really tough going from like flying, you know, Bonanzas, um, you know, single engine and much slower aircraft to a much faster aircraft to what we call a 705 operation. 705 is uh, airlines. So going to a 705 operation from instructing was a big jump for sure. There's like no doubt about it. But I think it's just a matter of like just practicing, like practicing and studying as much as you can and, and practicing with your sim partner and and really getting into the books. And I think that's what ultimately, you know, gives you that success down the road. So you move. So you went to Africa to go fly a, a Dash 8? I sure did. That's crazy. <laughs> that's so cool. How did you even find out about that? So we have this company in in Canada, and I won't I won't mention the name obviously, but people can look it up online. We have this company that's Canadian company um, that does they do UN based contracts, and they also do just like private contracts, kind of all around the world. Um, so they were involved with you know back in the day with like the Ebola crisis. They were helping UN soldiers in Afghanistan. So they've done tons and tons of stuff um, out in different uh, different portions of the world, and. I wanted to do something cool. I was like, you know what? I wanted to do something different. I don't want to go to the airlines right away. I wasn't, it didn't appeal to me. It wasn't like my, my goal. I, I've always tried to keep my mind super open in terms of like opportunities for aviation. Like I said earlier, I don't necessarily want to follow like a, you know, a super, not basic, but like a, a path that's been taken by a lot of other people. I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll do something different. Why not? Why not experience it? Because I figured I, it's probably a better time to do this before going to the airlines where all of a sudden now you're more concerned with, you know, your seniority and like kind of how you're kind of climbing up the ladder, so to speak. So I, I knew that it would probably be easier for me to do that before going to the to the airline. So I thought, why not? Why not give it a shot? So true. I mean, aviation is kind of like it, you make it your own in your own way. Like yeah. a lot of people kind of follow the timeline and they follow the progression of everyone else. And that's not saying that that's wrong. Like if you want to get that seniority number as soon as possible, like by all means, go get that seniority number. That's what's most important to you. Do it you're in it for the experiences, then you have so many opportunities that you can, you can go after. It's like what you said, you can go fly a dash eight in Africa, which is like unbelievable. And I'm jealous. That sounds so cool. Uh, but I mean, there's so many cool experiences you can do. Like, and what you'll find if you, if you choose the experience side over maybe chasing after seniority number, you might find uh, some more fun flying opportunities and it could even take you down a path that you never thought you'd go down. Like it could lead you to some other really cool job that maybe you'd be jealous of having now, you know? So it's that's it's, exactly I, it. Yeah, it's really cool that you did that. That's exactly it. I think that's why it's it's really important to to keep your mind open because I think what you nailed it there where you said it might even lead you to other opportunities because you don't, you don't know what you don't know, right? So you don't know whether or not you're going to end up meeting someone who ends up, you know, they do some, maybe some private charter flying for like this government organization, or maybe it's like a private company and they fly all over the world. Like there's, there's so many things that we don't know about. And yeah, the airlines are obviously a safe and true path for, for most people. And, and I'm there now, true, right? right? <laughs> obviously it's got its, its benefits. Yeah. It's got its benefits. Um, but I just said, you know what, why not experience that? So what was it like? What, what part of Africa did you go to, if you can say? And kind of like, what was yeah. the, the, was it a culture shock moving over there? So I was flying in the DRC, so the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, and I was flying there and I was flying in Uganda as well, which is a neighboring uh, neighboring country. Did you always feel and, safe when um, you're over there? Pardon me? Did you always feel safe when you're over there? I did. So safety wise. That wasn't an issue. Like we're very well taken care of. I think that I had one instance where I was like, "This is a bit weird." Um, I it was a, a very specific scenario where like I was being dropped off and I was like at a boat ferry and I was all of a sudden like 
very much on my own and my like my phone had been switched to a different country anyways long story short there was like an instance where I was like okay this is slightly uncomfortable um but I would say 99% of the time while I was down there I felt fantastic I felt really safe and you know you, you do keep your wits about you like you you do have that extra sense of awareness but most of the areas where we were in, like, you know, they, they know who you are. They're, they're not, they, they know you're working for the UN in this case or contracted out by the UN and they're not looking to to target you specifically. Right. That, that would put way too much, uh, <laughs> too much attention. So uh, I think overall, I think it was a fantastic experience. That's awesome. Were you flying supplies mostly or was it transport of people or what kind of flying? A little bit it? of both. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of both. So we were doing definitely some transport of uh, dangerous goods and sometimes it was um, supplies most frequently, it would be UN uh, soldiers and UN personnel. So moving them from their different bases or, or transiting them to, to somewhere else that they were going to. So that would be the bulk of the flying. Did you get shot at or anything? <laughs> no, no, not not myself. But it yeah. has happened in the past, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> I have a, there's a, there's a, a nonprofit organization called Samaritan's Purse. I don't know if, I, I'm pretty sure it's a worldly known, but I've had some friends that have flown there. Their their parents have flown there and they talk about flying. They did a bunch of like Christian organizations. They'd fly Bibles around, but they'd always talk about they're getting shot at in DC threes with like a thousand pounds of Bible or thousands of pounds of Bibles in the back. And it's just like, that's crazy getting shot at. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You you definitely have those moments, not gonna lie. You definitely have those moments where like you're like, is this my life right now? Like in like a funny way. Like you're just like, I'm never gonna forget this moment. Yep. Yeah, that definitely happened. How long were you over in Africa for? How long did you have that job? So I wasn't there for very long. It was only, um, they would do it in two months rotations. So you'd be there for two months and then back home for two months. Um, and unfortunately at the time I only ended up staying there for seven months total. Um, there was a bunch of stuff that happened with the UN. I won't go into detail, but basically we weren't flying for a certain amount of time. And, uh, we were, we were grounded as in for some of us in the operation. So I had to start to kind of look elsewhere. Um, and at the time I had already done an interview like a preemptive interview with my current employer and I was in their pool. Um, and I had basically a year to like respond back to, to go for an interview. So that was like at the seven month mark where I had already done that interview and they actually ended up reaching out to me and they're like, Hey, how's it going out there? Like, you know, how are you finding it with your current uh, company? And I was like, Hey, funny that you ask. <laughs> um, so I, I, it's, it's just a, it was just a timing situation with, uh, that UN company, which was really unfortunate. They, it's all sorted now. So it's, it's no longer an issue, but just while we were there is when things were kind of grounded for a certain time being. So I thought to myself, you know, it's great. We're still getting paid. I'm not flying though, which was most of the point of why I wanted to, to, yeah, exactly. Come out there. And, um, at the time this was like, this would have been four years ago and you know what it was in the industry four years ago, things were starting to really pick up. So I kind of told myself, well, I'd love to stay. I wanted to stay longer. Um, but because I'm not building hours, like I need to, to kind of get my ass in shape and just get more, more hours. So I ended up, uh, accepting the interview with the current employee that I have. Do you think if, say, the the job you had down there with the UN, if everything was just going normal, you were flying as you expected, do you think there's kind of an alternate side where maybe you'd still be over there or maybe be doing something else? Or do you think you would have eventually totally. found your way back? Yeah. Well, I would have definitely stayed longer. That is for sure. I was, I was even, you know, in my mind, I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll work towards upgrading as a captain on this operation because I thought it was like a perfect setup for me. It was like really cool, the different adventures you could get out there. We're doing really neat flying. Um, so I figured I would go in like, you know, I wanted to stay like two years, right. I wanted to go test it out, obviously see how I 
felt once I was down there, but I was envisioning myself to be there at least, uh, at least two years. So yeah, who knows, who knows what would have happened. Did you guys do any, well, I guess most of the places you'd fly, would they be kind of, uh, uh, normal airports or did you do any kind of off airport flying land on like dirt strips or anything like that? Or was it all pretty much airport to airport? It was some, some dirt strips, but your definition of an airport versus what's a definition of an airport down there is very, (laughs) (laughs) it's very different. So they'd all Um, be classified as dirt strips probably. Some of them, yeah. Thankfully, a lot of them had been paved over at this point, which was really nice. Um, Originally the operation that I was flying, they were flying the Dash 7s, which was really cool because the Dash 7s were more suited for like the dirt strips or really mm-hmm. short runways. Um, and they eventually switched to paved runways, which then allowed them to fly the, the dash eight. So the 300 and the 100 that I mentioned. Um, so some of them were dirt strips. Some of them were like, you know, the airport is really like just like a shack on the side and got like one or two security guards or, or whatnot, but some of them were more established. So flying into Uganda, for example, we would fly into Entebbe and Entebbe is a, is a national, excuse, excuse me, international airports. So you've got, you know, 747s flying in and out of there. So it's a much bigger uh, place to go. There's, you know, I think, I can't remember if there's parallel runways. I think there was just one. Um, and, you know, you'd be flying ILSs coming in, whereas like the other places you're, you're flying visual or you're flying like VOR approaches. or So yeah, so there's different levels of them for sure. That's cool. I mean, I'm sure that must've been an experience and that's something that you, you don't go to the airlines and then leave the airlines to go do that. So the fact that you were, you were able to do that before you went to the airlines is really cool. And, and I mean, I encourage people to try to find their own route, to try to find their own way to do it. And it can lead you to some really cool opportunities like what you said. And, uh, they're, they're out there. You just got to look for them. So it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, when you came back to Canada, did you ever, did you miss that flying? Did you miss that side of aviation? Or were you kind of like, oh, airlines, let's go travel for free. I'm going to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so tough. Look, Justin, it's so tough because that's exactly like the way that I think like some of the flying that we do, obviously in the airlines, like it's very controlled. It's very standardized. It's very repetitive. It's, very structured. So in terms of just like the cool, random, fun stuff that you could do, yeah, of course I miss I miss some of the flying in Africa. There's no doubt about it. Um, there is also something to be said about, you know, your home comforts and, you know, being able to eat peanut butter because for whatever reason where we were, there's no peanut butter. Or like, you know, there's just like these small things that you just you end up missing having like a solid gym, like the gym that we had down there. Um no, wasn't wasn't a great gym. Didn't Not really count as a gym. A gym. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you could really count it as a gym. Um, and you miss your friends. You know, the, the internet quality. I mean, it's amazing that we can even have internet to like communicate back and forth because they have in most places that we were, they had like three G uh, internet. So you can't maybe have video calls, but you can definitely have voice calls. So you can still stay quite connected to your your friends and family. But like physically seeing those people, I mean. Yeah, you end up feeling, you know, it's it can be lonely. It's, it's it can obviously be a really rough time. And two months doesn't sound like much, but you know, if you if you're going through a rough patch, like it's it's a long time, that's for sure. So there's some aspects that I miss, I absolutely miss, and then there's some parts where I don't miss whatsoever, like dealing with some of the, you know, people say Af- people say Caribbean time is really really like chilled out and really slow. Take Caribbean time. And then like times that by two and then you have like African time <laughs> in terms of like processes of how things go. So definitely have to work on your patience. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've never been there before. We fly to the Caribbean quite a bit with where I'm at right now. But I mean, my company operates bigger airplanes like the Globals and Gulfstreams and they go all over the world and they're in Africa quite a bit. So one day I hope to be down there and then I can, uh, I'll call you back and be like, yep, you're right. It is just <laughs> like that, you know. But, yeah, and the expression there is, uh, is TIA. 
this is Africa, which I'm sure you might have heard before, but it's you'll see once you get down there. Right. That's cool. I'll be looking out for it. <laughs> I'll be all set up now. I'll be ready to go. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh it's really interesting. And like you said, two months is a long time. Like I we go out for eight days or seven days at a time. And that's a long time to be stuck in a hotel, to be out on the road. So, I mean, two months is a lot, especially if you don't have a friend, if you don't have community there, you know, and you're, you're away. Like you said, you don't have the comforts of home. You don't have what you're comfortable with. And that can just make things even more kind of stressful, even more depressing. Um, it's just a lot. And it, I'm sure you grew a lot in that situation. I'm sure it forced you to find stuff out and to, to kind of go out of your comfort zone. So I think that's a, it was an important growth process for you too, before you came back. I absolutely agree. And that's, that's typically what I say to people when they ask me what it was. Like it's, it was, it was, yeah, it was a flying, you know, I grew as a pilot for sure, but I grew way more as a human down there. That's 100% uh, the case. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of, part of life is getting out of your comfort zone and growing and uh, make sure you're always bettering yourself. So that that's an opportunity you wouldn't have had without aviation in your life. So that's pretty cool. Totally. Where do you think, so you mentioned that you were, you were a, masa, or a masseuse. Um, where do you think your life would be without aviation? So say your dad never came to you and your dad was never <laughs> like, hey, you know, there's some girl that's a pilot. You should try to do that. What do you think you, what, what would Emily be right now? Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea because I, I kept being a massage therapist, like obviously through, through like my, my education as a pilot. And I only technically quit as of last year. So I was actually... 10, 10 years of massage therapist, um, because I kept doing it on the side. I kept having my own clients and, you know, I guess I, I just like doing different things. So maybe this was like a perfect setup, but with the airlines, obviously it was way, way too busy to, to keep up being like a, a massage therapist, but I have no idea what I'd be doing. I think I would, I'd probably be somewhere or somehow related to like travel industry. Like, I don't know if I'd have like some sort of like travel blog or like some sort of I don't know. I would be somehow involved with travel. I just don't know what I would be doing. So it's really hard to envision my life without it. I like to think that I'd have my own like sweet camper van going around the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. I guess, have you ever been, have you ever checked out the YouTube camper van scene? It's uh, it's pretty crazy. No, I haven't, but I'd be down because I did that in uh, in Iceland for, for a week. Oh, so I'd cool. be probably really interested in that. Yeah, yeah it, it's a slippery slope. It might get you to buy a camper van or a spare <laughs> van and go go hook it up with a stove and a bed. So <laughs> maybe you'll be that, that, a traveler doing that soon. <laughs> you never know, to be honest, at this point. Yeah, right. But uh, yeah, so you uh, you came back from Africa. You got the job you're at currently right now. What was that like kind of coming back to Canada? What was it like going through kind of... <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if standardized training is right because I'm sure you still had standardized training out in Africa, but it's definitely an airline yep. field. It's definitely an airline vibe. What was it like getting back into kind of like the the airline feel or the uh, back just back to Canada and flying for an airline? Yeah, it's to be honest, I, I had a really rough time at first. So you asked like a couple of questions ago. You were talking about you know how was the culture shock and. It was actually, it's called reverse culture shock, which I looked up later, but I actually didn't experience that much culture shock going to Africa. It was actually coming back. I had a way rougher time. Um, I, it just like adapting all of a sudden to like, just like the, the consumerist mentality that we typically have more out here. I, I just was feeling super low. Like it was a bit of a rough time because I was expecting, or in my mind, I think I was wanting to stay with the company that I was at for a little bit longer. And it, it was taking a long time before deciding, because I mentioned it was like seven months in total. So it took a long time of back and forth to figure out if I was going to like go back or if I was wanting to do that more full time or if I should apply. Because at this point now I was like starting to apply to numerous airlines because obviously the one that had 
you know, kept, you know, an interview spot for me. It wasn't guaranteed, obviously, that I was going to make it. So there was a lot of like, you know, there was maybe a period of three to four months where I was feeling quite low and, you know, not having really guidance, not really knowing if airlines were going to be for me. But once I did and I started through the pro- the process, um, having that regimented like structure for me is really good. Like I thrive off that. And it, so it was really nice to get back into the training, get back into like stressful, you know, sim scenarios, which, you know, we all love and hate at the same time, but going through the training was, was really nice. So it was a bit of a, a an uphill struggle for me, but once the flying did, um, did start up and was more consistent that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm back in my group now. So that was a, a nice transition to, to finally get to. Did you ever regret coming back? Um, I, I don't know if I would say regret because I was obviously happy that I moved on to this new chapter, but like, I missed like some of like the adventure. There's no doubt about it. I was, I was like, Oh my God, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get this because the, the flying that we're doing is very, you know, like I said, like it's just structured and, it, and it's, it's just planned. It's all scheduled. Right. So you know exactly what you're doing. And because I'm in the regional branch of my airline, the flying that we're doing in terms of like destinations, it's all over Canada. Right. So we have some U S destinations, but we don't lay over there. So my, adventures that I like crave and enjoy so much all of a sudden now they're not happening with my employer per se they're happening on my own downtime my own free time and I had to like make that switch in my mind I think once I once I did accept that I was like okay it's still obviously possible to do this I just have to create it for myself it's not going to come from the flying it's going to come from my own activities which may sound silly to other people but like because I had witnessed such an extreme in terms of like adventures and such a fun thing, it was like, I had to make that switch in my mind. Absolutely. Well, what were the destinations you guys would fly to in the States? Oh, the only one that we do for the, our operation, we go to, um, on the East coast, we go to Boston and Nashville. And then in the West coast where I am, we go to Portland. Okay. So you go, so is it Toronto to Boston and Nashville? Yes. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Or just Toronto, Nashville as well. I think is Is that a long flight. To it's longer yeah. yeah yeah it's longer i think it's one of our the boston i think we also used to do montreal if i'm not mistaken um but those are the longer flights yeah like the toronto boston one is like uh close to two hours yeah nice yeah i, I don't i didn't think because you were flying dash eights there too right the yeah. whole time yeah yes. so yeah that's a good trek for a dash eight going down to nashville that's yeah, things that you guys didn't yeah. get to overnight there at all though I know it only it only ever happened if people like I ropped out there. Yeah, right. <laughs> be like, yeah, we're finally I ropping in Boston. Yeah, you're like, oh, sorry, I'm yeah. in Nashville. This the weather's nice. It's snowing back in Toronto. I'm yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. cool. Uh, so what's a uh, what's a typical day in the life of uh, you at an airline? So what's the typical route? How many sectors? How many flights do you typically fly? What was normal for you? So I'll talk about it pre-COVID because obviously that's a very change at this point. Yeah, we can talk pre-COVID um, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So prior to it, um, a typical day for like a regional pilot at uh, where we are is, you know, anywhere from three to five legs per day. Um, and you're typically gone, depending on like how you bid for your schedule, of course. But most of us are typically gone between three to four days at a time. So, you know, you'll get going your first day. You're flying four legs, let's say layover in we'll just call it Saskatoon <laughs> in uh, in the prairies in Canada and then you'll get up that next morning fly another you know four or five legs land somewhere else and then do that for two more days or for four total of you know four days and then again depending on how you bid we typically get you know two one to three days off we'll call it between between your your 
your uh, pairings. Gotcha. Okay. So it's very similar to kind of like a, a regional life down in the States that I'm guessing too. Mm-hmm. You said Saskatoon. I have flown in Saskatchewan. I believe that's how you say it. What was it called? Yep. It was, um. oh my gosh, it was like a really odd name, like Moosehead or like... Moose I don't think it was Moose Jaw. Moose Jaw is in Regina, yeah. Yeah, I, I flew, I, I don't know if that was it, but it was somewhere, I'm actually looking at Moose Jaw right now. No, that wasn't it, but it was like Medicine Hat. That's where I flew. I flew to oh, Medicine Hat. <laughs> It was the most random place I've ever flown in my life. And it was called, actually, no, Anaconda, Montana was the most random place I've ever flown. But Medicine Hat is the second most (laughs) random place I've ever flown in my life. There you go. Welcome to Prairie, uh, Prairies in Canada. (laughs) Yeah, it it was beautiful though. I mean, it was really cold, but the sunrise was amazing. It was really cool. We did, uh, that trip was weird. We did like a a Canadian trip flying a a Canadian businessman or maybe American businessman around. And uh, we went all throughout Canada. We had overnights in Calgary, uh, Toronto. and We did a bunch of flying. It was really cool. Did you go over like the mountains at all? Uh, we never went over. We never flew uh, west of Calgary. So unfortunately, uh, no. I know. I, well, when we were landing in Calgary, I was like, hey, how far away is Banff? I'm trying to go, <laughs> trying to go yeah. up there, you know, but yeah, it didn't work out in our timeline. Yeah, you guys could definitely got to go check it out because that's if you, if I, because I was originally based in Toronto and I eventually moved to, uh, to Calgary while I was working with this operation and like the flying that we do out in the mountains, it's like, there's your fun. Like that's a really, really fun time. It's uh, it, the views are unreal there for sure. I agree. And most of my favorite flying that we do at the company I'm at now is out in the mountains too. So in the, the Rockies in Colorado or Montana, Wyoming, those airports yeah. are some of the coolest ones. And I used to yeah, do those are really cool opportunities too. Yeah. I used to fly freight and I used to go to Toronto area all the time, but I never, I was looking up on four flight where the airport you're flying. I always went to South Toronto or like uh, Hamilton, Kitchener, London. That's where we would mainly live for uh, the freight that I'd fly. But we'd go to Canada and Toronto all the time. Which makes sense because I, I think they do on like all the airports in the periphery for like freighter operations. And then like the international stuff goes to, to Pearson itself. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was crazy, I went to Montreal one time and I realized that they had two Montreal airports. One is just for freight and the other one is just for passengers, which was, was wild to me. I think there's even a third one. Is it really? <laughs> like What's that one for? Corporate? Three, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. I think it was like they were trying to switch the the international one to that one, but like the distance from the, the city was way too far. So they like built this airport and it's like hardly used nowadays. I think that's how it goes. And like all the Montreal people are going to be upset with me because I don't know it by heart, but I'm not from there. So, but uh, I think that's how it goes. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, no, it, uh, it's interesting. It's just, it's interesting that we can, uh, have aviation we can both both countries can have ways of operating and it can be different it's like you have so many different rules operating in canada than you do in the states it's like you have to cancel both the search and rescue and ifr and you have to i think there's differences too when you're cleared on arrivals and stuff like that which is just it's just interesting how they both work but they're both different and you definitely need to know what you're doing when you fly in a different country yeah i can only imagine for you like learning all the different stuff when you're coming out here because you're operating way more into canada yeah. Uh, that I am comparatively to like the states. I'm sure you, I'm sure the rules could probably get like so jumbled up for you guys. Yeah. We, I mean, we fly like all over the place. There's one part, where do we fly? We flew like all the way to Eastern Canada where they're like cancel IFR and they're like, all right, you're, you're still 200 miles away from your destination, but like no IFR, you're all VFR. <laughs> that was wild too. You're like, uh, okay, yeah, here we go. Like, <laughs> it's like, wait, I still have an hour and a half left to fly. What do you mean? You're going to cancel IFR yeah. on me. It was pretty funny. It was uh, some golf course out there that we went to, but yeah, no, it's cool. Flying Canada has been fun and I've enjoyed that. 
Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about too is Instagram and aviation. So when did you start an Instagram account and what kind of, what, what was your original goal of Instagram? Because I feel like a lot of people have a goal <laughs> yeah. of like just showing off how great aviation is and just like showing off like the, the pluses and the great things. But what was your goal right. when you started Instagram? Did you think you're going to get this many followers? Did you think it was going to be like, people are going to be looking up to you? No, not at all. <laughs> so when I started, um, I think I started Instagram like shortly when it, it like got created, which I think was like back in, I want to say like 2012 right? or, or yeah, 10, maybe 12? short. Yeah. A little bit shortly after. Cause I remember it wasn't right when I started or maybe it was, I think you might be right. I actually made 2011, 2010, something like that. And I just started just posting random stuff about just like my life. Like I, I just do my own thing the way that everybody else probably started their Instagram um, I didn't really know what it was about. I didn't really understand like the, like the, the rules or like the engagement behind it. Like I didn't get any of that, but I would just randomly post stuff. And then I think like through instructing, I would post some as well, but again, not too much. It really started to just like pick up and get some traction when I was flying out in Africa. So I would start to like post more stuff out there because like, you know, my views were a little bit cooler and like, just like different experiences and different stuff that I was doing. So I think I started picking up some traction there. And again, no idea what I was doing, no idea what this was going to become. Like I, I didn't have really many goals Like to go back to your question. I didn't really know what I was doing with this. And then people started messaging me and saying like, I was like motivating them to, to get to where I was. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, well, I haven't made it anywhere. Like, I'm not sure what you're referring <laughs> yeah. to, but sure. Like, how thanks, am I motivating right? you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was just kind of doing my own thing, just posting. And then it really started to pick, pick up even more when I got back to, um, to the airlines in Toronto. And then it just exploded. And I think at that point, like, obviously, I recognize I'm in a niche market. I'm a woman in aviation. Like, we obviously... Any, any woman who's in this industry is going to stand out just naturally for the fact that there's so little of us. So, you know, fully recognize that the niche is, is quite um, specific for that. And I just, I, I, I just post pictures and it just keeps like kind of blowing up. So I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. And in terms of goals, like, I, I don't know, maybe people don't get this vibe from, from my Instagram, but like, I try not to take it too seriously because it's just social media and you know, what we post on there is, is 100%, you know, the highlight of what we're going through. There's so much more stuff that happens behind the scene. And the instant that it starts making me feel like stressed or feel like I have this like expectation or on myself or like this image to uphold, like it, I start to just push away from it. If anything, it doesn't, it doesn't um, motivate me because I'd rather connect more genuinely with people. And, you know, obviously there's certain things that you can't post about, or maybe there's certain things that you have to be more reserved because you're also representing the industry. You're representing, you know, the, the company that you're currently flying with. Um, so you, there's like this line that you have to kind of follow and, and, and try to stay on as much as possible. But to go back to your original thing, like in terms of like goals, I mean, I just want to connect with people and I just want to, make people see that this is achievable for them too. And and if this, if this is what they want to come to, like, you know, I, I'm there for, for people to reach out to in terms of like mentoring and like legit questions uh, to try to help other people out. So that's, that's kind of like the goal of it really. Yeah, no, that's a good goal to have because it is a lot. It can be a lot. I mean, having attention, having followers can kind of be uh, annoying sometimes. Like I know it's like an ungrateful thing to say, but it can be a lot. It can be draining. It can lead you down a dark path if you focus on that. And I think one thing to to really to focus on and to remember is that 
if you ever start getting followers, you ever start having a presence, it's like you got to remember that your job is more important than than having Instagram followers, and you have to be careful what you what you're putting out there because there's there's so many things that you think look cool or are cool or are funny, but your your companies will be like, uh, yeah, you're representing us at all times, and that's including when you are making this stupid joke on Instagram when you've been off or when you're on vacation. You know, it's like that's still not that's okay. Exactly it. That's exactly it. And I I've been lucky to. I, I can I can confidently say that like you know most of the stuff I've posted I, I don't you know I haven't uh, had to go back and be like oh wow I should probably delete that post from two weeks ago or or whatever the case right like I do take my time typically and and sometimes to go back to what you're saying in terms of like prioritizing like you know I was going through my upgrade you know the last like four or five months and I wasn't posting as much I was studying my butt off and I was like you know super dedicated to that and people were like oh you're not posting and like you know your engagement goes down and your followers kind of decrease and I was like I don't care <laughs> like I need to I'm sorry you guys like I really want to be that inspiration to you guys and I really want to motivate you guys but right now like this is my priority like I need to focus on this and yeah there's not going to be some some YouTube videos for a little bit and yeah like I'm not going to be posting because this is the reality like my life currently what I'm going through that's the reality and of course I'll connect when I can but regional flying as you know like I'm sure it's the same in the states like we have very little (laughs) days off so like when you're trying to study and you're still flying full-time like it's it's a lot so 100% your job that career is going to be the priority. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I agree. It's uh, when you're in training and stuff, it's the Instagram, the Facebook. I, the, I sound like I'm an old man. Jeez. Instagram and Facebook take a, take a back burner and you just got to focus on what's important. And yeah, it just, yeah, it's interesting kind of social media and aviation. I mean, some of the guidelines, like I'm sure some of the guidelines are a little too strict, but they're there for a reason because people take advantage of them and people kind of take it too far. And it's tough for a big company to trust everyone with their brand. So there has to be some kind of, uh, there has to be somewhere where they draw the line. You know, it's, it's an interesting place and it it has great, it offers great opportunities. It offers great, great kind of engagement and a great way to show off your job, but you just have to be careful with it. Totally. And like, there's tons and tons and tons of positive, like you and I wouldn't obviously have met up if, you know, if it weren't for social media and, and Instagram. So I'm super grateful for the opportunity that I've had. Like I've connected with amazing people. Like when I went, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was in Australia, I connected with two female pilots that are down there and we just like spent some time together, you know, all from having a relationship prior to on, you know, on Instagram. So like just those kind of things, like I would never have been able to connect like that had it not been for, for social media. And, and the amount that it's, grown like I'm super grateful obviously I had no idea I would get to where it is I to, to me I don't see myself as any different like I'm just a normal human you know and people meet me they're like oh I follow you on Instagram I'm like hi yeah, <laughs> like I'm, hi, I'm still the same person you know <laughs> um but I'm still I'm still super grateful and it, it's 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 still funny to me people think it's weird for them to meet me and if anything I think it's the other way around and it's more weird because I'm like I'm just this normal person like hi like it's just it's crazy that people want to follow me I think is what I'm trying to get to so I try to really just like not take it you know seriously not take myself seriously and just I'm there just to to connect with people and and just have fun with it and and share just my adventure what I'm kind of going through really yeah I think that's the right mindset to have with it too and that because once you get caught up in the fact of like making having followers and having a fan base and taking it too serious that's when you're either going to lose your fan base or lose the people that like following you because you're not going to be relatable anymore. Or that's just when you kind of lose out on your, your values and your morals and you're in it for the wrong reasons. What, um, so here's, I got a couple more questions, maybe one more question. So in the United States, I think, uh, 
women aviators, I believe it's like 6%, 7-8% in that area. Is that similar in Canada? Is it Does Canada do a better job at promoting aviation for girls or is it right around the same? What do you say? I think I think it's the same. I think the the percentages are very similar. I think at my so my regional branch currently um, there's a higher percentage. It's like ten percent or something like that. Um, not sure why that is. It just happens to be. But I think overall it is still seven percent. It, it's a uh, it's quite similar. What do you think we can do better to get more girls in aviation to have more? More girls fly, more girls get involved. Do you think it's more at a, uh, even just telling younger girls to say like in elementary or middle school, I don't know what it's called in Canada, but kind of like earlier years, like, hey, this is an option. Or do you think it is going to high schools and talking to people? Because obviously girls want to fly. Like that's not, that's not the case. Like people, they can fly, they will fly and they need to fly. But how do we get that across? How do we, how do we bump that number up? It's a great question. And, I, and I, I've been asked this before and I've kind of had some time to to kind of think about it. And I think it, you nailed it originally. I think it has to be more of a grassroots type of movement. So m- much younger. I think having role models, you know, in your elementary school or like, you know, when you're you're first looking up to people and you're first starting to like create a personality and, and think about your future. I think it really comes down to like the elementary school stuff, um, just like for STEM, for like just like science and technology, like any of those, um, I guess ventures or like possible careers that women can be involved with. I think it needs to start, you know, very young. And I think it comes down to like, yeah, having those opportunities, like having people come into classrooms and talking about it, or even having like those job fairs for maybe later on in, in, uh, in high school. But I think it's also even like role models. And I think that's where the social media aspect can really come into play. And that's why I'm quite happy to continue this and continue to try to help inspire women to, to, you know, keep going. Because I think, for myself growing up, I like, I didn't have that necessarily. I didn't have that social media to go to. And we now know, you know, girls or young girls in elementary school and high school, they've got social media to, to look up to and start to brainstorm. So I think that combined the exposure that we're kind of having with social media and combined with, you know, early uh, involvement, say in elementary school, I think would be fantastic. I agree. I mean, obviously I'm a guy. So what I say, maybe like take a grain of salt. Cause I don't really understand really too much, but like, I think it's important to, that the girls know they can be pilots because they can be great pilots. They can be better than guys. Like there's no limit to how good of a pilot or what they can do. And I think that's starting young. And I think it, actually social media really helps out in that case because it gives you the exposure that there's other girls out there flying. So I think social media does a great job in showcasing that girls can do this and that girls should do this. And I hope that maybe we're seeing some 11, 10, 12 year old girls like be like, hey, Emily's a badass. I want to be a pilot just like her, you know? So like, hopefully, hopefully in a couple of years, we'll be seeing more girls come up and that number will start coming Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's even small stuff too, like just getting involved in your community. If you can, like we used to do um, like a, an event called Girls Take Flight. This was in Ontario. So this was obviously, couldn't necessarily do it in, in Calgary, but where you would just go and volunteer your time and go fly uh, fly girls around in, you know, small 172s, just doing a circuit, just like a little intro flight for them. But it was free if you like applied and you like to participate, but just like that connection with people and like, just trying to give back so that they can look up to you and be like, Oh yeah. Okay. Some, I can see myself in that person. Like I can see that it's achievable and, and try to give back and expose yourself for those kind of events. I think are super important too, because I think they have been younger as well. Like what you said. Oh yeah, definitely agree. And you said it very well. And I, I hope that's the case. I hope that's happening and I hope we can get more. Yeah. Of that because it's Absolutely. needed for sure. 
All right. You are pretty much done with the interview. I have one more section for you and it's called the rapid fire questions. And (laughs) I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and I want the quickest, the fastest answers you can possibly give. You don't really have to give any explanation for why. You just have to just give an answer. Okay. All right. So I'll start off easy. Well, maybe it's not easy, but I'll start off with this one. What is your favorite airplane? And we'll start with uh, airline airplanes. So like uh, any kind of big heavy metal, what's your favorite airplane? 747. What about a corporate airplane? Ooh, I don't even know them enough. <laughs> <laughs> Just say Gulfstream. <laughs> That's there you go, idea. Gulfstream. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite kind of GA small airplane? I really like the Bonanza. That's a good plane. I like that one too. All right, this one's hard for people. Some people don't have one. I'm very vocal on what mine is, but what is the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Oh my God. Like the air van or the sky van. Yeah. That one. Do you know one. which one that is? Yeah, yeah, I do. I've seen that one before. That's a good one. <laughs> it's amazing. There are some ugly planes out there. Some people say there's no such thing as an ugly airplane. I would like to <laughs> beg to differ and they're wrong. <laughs> I love them all. I would totally yeah. fly it too. Oh I'd yeah. Like, I'd still yeah, fly it. The sky plane. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Here's one. What is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? You'll be tested. <laughs> you will be tested in your life through this career. Yeah, not just sure. kind of men- not like just like your your skills emotionally. Though, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's gonna push you to the brink. <laughs> Here's one. Who in the industry would you like to meet most? It could be uh, someone that's living, someone that has died in the past, or someone on social media that you just really want to meet. Does Chris Hadfield count? It does. Whoever you he's want. A, yeah. He's a yeah astronaut, and I'm like he's kind of in our industry, but not well, not really. I'd love to meet him. I think he sounds like a really cool dude. There you go. Sounds good. I haven't heard that one yet before. So there we go. All right. Here is one. What is your favorite thing about aviation? The ability to constantly learn, learn new things. All right. Uh, What's your favorite coffee? Are you a Tim Hortons, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, or whatever other Canadian coffee they offer? (laughs) Um. I'm going to be the non-standard Canadian and say McDonald's. Oh, it's definitely, are those fighting words can I up do there? That? Can yeah. I be a rebel? Are you going to get lose a bunch of followers because of that now? Right? <laughs> yeah, no, no. To be honest, I'm like the cheap coffee person. Yeah. I really don't care. Yeah, I love awesome. coffee regardless. Yeah, coffee's the best. All right, here's one. What is the hardest approach or one of your least favorite approaches you've ever had to fly? Uh, Terrace, British Columbia. Okay. Why was that the hardest one? Just weather conditions it's, or... It's got this weird geographic setup that it has its own weather system that goes down there. The minimums are quite high. It always has super low clouds. It's always got insane amount of turbulence, and we always have to take a tailwind. <laughs> so oh, yeah. it's a challenging, challenging, fun approach. Sounds like Aspen for us. Aspen's a mm. very interesting place. In the mountains, right? Yep. In the mountains? Yeah. Yep. All right, here's one. What is your favorite airport to land at? That you ever have landed at. So it could be in Africa. Yeah. It could be as uh, flying a Bonanza around or it could be flying a, a Dash 8 up in Canada. It might have to be... Saskatoon? Oh, this is so hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no. It might have to be Penticton. Okay. Penticton or Comox, in both in uh, British Columbia. Never heard of either of those, but they sound great. <laughs> they're, they're both beautiful. Right. Yeah. What's your least favorite airport you've ever had to land at? I have to think about these because we go so frequently. Maybe like, like Grand Prairie, you know, Fort McMurray, maybe there's like a weird thing that happens on, on one of those approaches. And it's just like, it's always crappy no matter what you do. I think it's the slope of the runway. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. Here's one. You are, so say you have like a five sector day, five legs and you're on leg three. You're really hungry. You're in a major airport. Say you're in Vancouver, you're in Calgary, you're in Toronto, whatever it may be. 
and you want to go get some food. What's your go-to food? You didn't bring any food. You have to buy food. What's your go-to food to go get? Mm, chicken pad thai. I like it. I like it. My wife would want that too. We always have yeah, pad thai. Yeah, it's so great. good. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or cities? Mountains. Airbus or Boeing for like a dream airplane that you can fly? Boeing. Uh, would you rather fly five trips in a day or one long trip? One long trip. What's the biggest regret you've ever had in your career? Ooh. Probably not staying in Africa longer. Yeah. What's the biggest win yeah. of your career so far? Uh, upgrading to captain. There you go. Congrats, by the way. Mm. Would you rather you. fly Pipers, Cessnas, or any other kind of insert small airplane here? And Bonanza would count as a Cessna now, I guess, since Textron yeah, owns Yeah, exactly. Beachcraft. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. I'll say Cessna. Yeah, I'll say Cessna. All right, cool. Um, what's your favorite airline to fly on for like like uh, flying across the world? What's your favorite airline? Most comfortable, like business class or seat or whatever, however you normally fly. I think the one that I've loved so far was Lufthansa. Okay, cool. Never flown on them before. That'd be fun. What? Right, let's see. One more. Are you an Apple or iOS or Apple or Android person? Android all the way. Gotcha. Cool. That's the last one I have. <laughs> but <laughs> nice, yeah. Nice. So good, those are good, all the uh, questions I have. You have successfully completed the interview. Hopefully it wasn't too bad, but thank you so much for coming no. on. I appreciate it. And I did enjoy talking to you. It was a great, you have a great story. And I think you're going to be able to, to resonate with a lot of people. And a lot of people will like this story. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. AV Nation, that is a wrap of episode number 109 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Follow us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. Also buy me a coffee, like I said earlier, and shop pilotthepilot.com. New tan leather hats. They look pretty great if I do say so myself. So go ahead and check those out. Pre-order only, putting in an order on Saturday. AV Nation, you might have heard that noise. I'm in Cleveland, so I'm in a hotel and I'm recording into my camera on the camera microphone. So don't know how this is going to sound, but you know, kind of have to do what you got to do here when life on the road. Uh, I hope everyone's staying safe. I hope you're enjoying uh, some quarantine time and enjoying your friends and family, whoever you are stuck quarantine with. Uh, I hope you guys are also getting some flying. So enjoy, stay safe, and as always, happy flying.